Good morning, everyone. Couple of uh, reminder announcements. Easter flower sign-up deadline is today. I think the, the, the flower uh, sign-up sheet might get passed around here in a second. So uh, just want to make sure everybody is aware of that. Remember that choir is going to be here. Concordia Seminary St. Louis choir will be here tomorrow at 6.30. So that's a free concert. It's cool to hear some of the stuff they'll be singing. Um, Theology on Tap, this Thursday, 7 o'clock in the youth room, we'll be studying Luther's Large Catechism, 5th, 6th, and 7th Commandments. Hopefully we'll get that far. And um, we, have, we, we already have somebody sponsoring, um, sponsoring Theology on, at least next month's Theology on Tap with a Thrive in Action team, which I wanted to briefly mention. There's a note in the week at a glance regarding this, but um, if you're a Thrivent member, you have access to this cool thing called Thriving Action Teams, which if you've been a Lutheran for a while, you remember like years and years ago, they used to have like um, matching funds from Lutheran Brotherhood or AAL. So like every time there was a fundraiser, you have like a small fundraiser for something in your church. And then whoever your, your Lutheran Brotherhood or AAL rep, they'd say something like, oh, and there's matching funds. AAL will be matching funds with this fundraiser. And so you raise a hundred bucks and they give you a hundred bucks. So that's, that was the way they maintained their non, non-profit status by giving money back to the churches. Um, but now Thrivent is not affiliated with, with um, just Missouri Synod nor Christianity. Um, but they are, they're a business, but they're still a nonprofit. And so they're needing to give their money away. And the way they do it is they give it back. They're trying to give seed money back to its members to start a, different kind, a whole different array of activities within their congregations and communities and so forth. So you can, look, you can find that very easily in your Thriving account. If you log into your Thriving account, and then you get, you get two Thrivent Action Teams a year. Each one of those is, is 250 bucks. They just mail you a gift card. You're not supposed to use it on ammunition or booze beyond, or gift cards, those three things. They're pretty clear. Um, we, uh, yeah, but we've used that to fund a variety of things. Basically, anytime there's any kind of youth fundraiser or youth trip or lots of like VBS, all that kind of stuff, we can use a Thrive in Action team. You can use one per event per day, unless you get really creative. Molly D'Amico is the genius of getting creative with the Thrive in Action team card. So see her if you're looking to really uh, push the rules. No, <laughs> but it's all about wording, getting it approved and they mail you the cards and stuff. So if you wanna learn more about that, talk to myself or, or Beth. Um, really, we're trying to compile a list of people who are like, I'm a Thrive member. I didn't even know I had these cards. I'd love to support like, like Theology on Tap or Vacation Bible School or whatever it is, because we, we've got like a small list of a few people and we always uh, use theirs and then we're, then we're just drawing on church budget. So it's a way to prevent, prevent spending a church budget on some of these fun things. And last but certainly not least, today is a very, very sad day uh, because it is uh, Fred Hardin's last day here. Fred, stand up if you would. Fred. <laughs> They're clapping with excitement that you're leaving. It's your last, no, no. I met Fred the first time and when he visited me in Estes Park, Colorado, he visited my church. He goes, hi, I'm Fred. I'm from Bethany, Naperville. And he said it with this tone of like, you should know this church. <laughs> and that was before I was even on the call list for here and stuff. So, um, but yeah, so Fred's moving to Colorado. So blessings to you, safe travel to you and your family. You will be missed. Fred's been a long time 
president of all the Bible studies. He was one of the original gluten-free wafer guys. We always had to remember, Fred here or not, get the wafer. You know. All right. So uh, Luke 18, last week we, we made it almost all the way through the parable of the persistent widow. So just a quick recap there. Um, remember, J Jesus was, was just coming off of talking about the kind of the turmoil in the church in the end days, the persecution that would be faced by his disciples in the church. But he didn't want them to grow anxious. And so he says at the beginning of 18 that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. And so in our times of, of temptation toward losing heart, the Lord's telling us to pray like this persistent widow who has, who has no reason to pray before this judge um, on her own merits. She has no way to intimidate him. She doesn't have any power, no money, no strength of, of her own. All she can do is, is persistently pray, annoy the unrighteous judge who doesn't care about people's opinions or people's reputations. Um, and yet he, she is able to persuade him. And Jesus says, likewise, um, or even more so for those for those whom the Lord loves, he hears our prayer. He has commanded us to pray, promises to hear us. And so in our times of trial, or we, we be tempted toward anxiety, he calls us to pray, knowing that um, his will would be done. So we always add that little caveat to the end of all of our prayers, thy will be done. Knowing that our good and gracious and loving Heavenly Father always will give us what we've prayed for or something better. And that's kind of where our conversation ended last week. Um, and that's, I think, a helpful way to think about prayer, that whatever it is that we receive, we are given to know that it's better than what we ask for if it's not what we ask for. Better maybe not according to our own measurement of things, but better according to what he knows to be better for us. Does that make sense? Certainly that's really, really hard to say, especially in times of trial, and that's why we say it according to faith. So remember, faith is, and we've been talking about this through Luke, faith is not according to what is seen, but what is heard over and against what is seen. So to live by sight would be to live according to, is my life going good or bad in front of me and, and, and determine that God loves me accordingly. Rather, we're given to say, no, I know that God loves me and he, he cares for me and he's given me what I need. Oh, I don't see how cancer is on the list of things that I need or whatever the thing is, whatever the trial is that I'm facing in my life. And the Lord says, no, no, I, mean, I know you think you, I think you, I know you think you, you think you don't need this trial, but I'm telling you right now, if you don't have this trial, um, it could very well lead you away from me. So I'm giving you this trial as a gift. <sighs> what? As Paul says, we rejoice in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. How can that be? Well, because we're mindful that there, for whatever reason, the Lord has allowed them for our good. Now, I mean, that's, we all, we all go through death. So we all go through suffering at some point, but usually our, we're most attuned to when suffering comes not in accord with the normal process. So when someone's really you know, older, they've been you know, near, we're like, okay, when someone's 110 and um, they, we expect that they would be going toward the end of life, but it's different when there's like childhood leukemia, right? Um, when death kind of pops up when we don't necessarily expect it. But then that's just, 
that's one of the many ways we can suffer. So, um, so as, a, as a Christian, we were given to pray in those times. When we start to lose heart and feel anxious, we're given to pray like the persistent widow, which is, Lord, let this cup pass from me, as Jesus would say, did say. Um, but then also give me the strength to endure whatever it is. And also the faith to be able to say, not my will, but thy will be done. Right? And so that's where Jesus is teaching us in the Lord's Prayer that we say all the time, but that, that one petition there, thy will be done, that's we just, that, 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 that brings God's love for us into all of our prayers. So we know, we recognize that he's gonna love us no matter what we receive. And we're reminding ourselves that too, that whatever it is that I'm getting today is according to his good and gracious will, not because of any merit or worthiness in me, and that's to use our catechism language, all these things that we receive according only to his fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. Because what, what do I deserve according to the merit or worthiness in me? Only bad. So when I get anything else, you know, it's all chalked up to his divine goodness and mercy. And then he finishes that section before the Pharisee and tax collector with, uh, nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Question mark. And that's kind of a seemingly bizarre, a bizarre saying by Jesus there. But um, when we're talking about faith, we want to be mindful that um, we don't want to disassociate faith from the object of faith. Faith is only as strong as the object. So my faith is big and strong if it's in Jesus, and it's weak and worthless if my faith is in myself. So in that way, we can understand faith being wherever Jesus is. So Jesus comes into this world. I mean, today, especially at the Annunciation, we were, we're, we're mindful of him coming into our sinful humanity. And that, I mean, I think to, to, to de-abstract it would be to say he comes into this world of, of um, like hard jobs, um, cancer, daily monotony, marriage strife, children uh, go, going astray, but then all the, all the good things too. But he, that's what he comes into. He wants to be known here among us. So he brings faith down to us. And where there is not faith, we only have fear. So if you want more faith, you run to the one who gives it. So it's in our times of trial, in our times of suffering, we run to Jesus and ask for more faith. But notice when you're talking to Jesus, that's the one, that's the object of faith. So he's the one who strengthens our faith. And so of course, when the son of man comes, he will find faith on earth because he's the one who gives it. He's the one who strengthens it. Now, let's jump into the Pharisee and the tax collector. Great text, a fun picture there with a, on the front of your handout with the Pharisee um, dropping his money in the offering in front of everybody, making his, his um, generosity known. And then, this, then the, the uh, tax collector in his repentant state asking for forgiveness. So let's read it. Verse nine of chapter 18. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Context, always helpful to remember, right? 
So remember who he's, he's giving us the why right off the bat. He's saying this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Very rich, rich text here, lots of helpful teaching for us. So let's jump in. First question on your handout, who's the target of the parable and what problem is Jesus addressing? Those who do what? Trust in themselves for their righteousness. Now, what is righteousness? Upright, right before God. So there's, a, there's like, to simplify it, there's a right and a wrong, and to be right would be righteous, to be in the good. And they're trusting in themselves for that, for that accomplishment as some kind of a self-made, uh, self-made accomplishment. So using, how would you, how would one determine that they were righteous? The law is the only way to know what righteousness, what righteousness even is. So they're taking up the law and using it as a way to measure themselves as being righteous before God. So they're using God's law, but not for his intended purpose. Especially notice the progression. So not only does when one takes up the law and uses it to, to measure themselves in any way that it has them in, as good, it necessarily leads to treating others how? With contempt. I mean, the, the Greek idea there is to, tr- to treat them as worthless or disdain them, to reject them and have no use for them. So that the, if I take, take up the law to build myself up, I'm always building myself up in contrast to others. So it's helpful for me, actually. It's actually easier uh, rather than trying to like build myself up, I just push others down. It's like that joke to go, like, I don't need to outrun a bear, I just need to outrun you, right? So I can, or I trip you up, leave you back. So I can, I can, just, I can measure myself as being good and better and best by condemning everybody else around me. And that's actually, that's the natural way of the law was we, as we, whenever we pick it up, that's like what we do with it, we can't help ourselves, but almost even subconsciously judging others and, um, and holding ourselves up higher. Like, the, can you, can't you just think of people who do that? Aren't those people terrible? See what I did there? <laughs> like, that's the idea. It's our mind, like our minds more, more rapidly go to other people who are like that Pharisee. And they're like, yeah, I wish so-and-so was here to hear, to hear this message right now. Uh, but no, you're missing the point. All right. So they're trusting in themselves, self-righteous, lowering the bar for themselves and raising it for others. 
Um, two men went up into the temple to pray. Whenever someone goes to the temple, it's always described as going up, no matter if they're coming from the north or the south, because it's actually, it's uh, topographically, it, uh, what's that, is that the right word? It's a higher altitude, but also it's higher according to its, its, its role. It's the temple, it's the high place. And so it's always, you'll notice people are always going up to the temple, regardless of where they're coming from. Uh, to pray, one a Pharisee, the other tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prays, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Number four in your handout, when someone says thank you, what have they previously received from you? They've received a gift. So the thank you is an acknowledgement that they have received something, Right? So why is the Pharisee giving thanks? He says, look, God, I give you thanks that I am so good of myself. So I picked this picture, the, the idea, this thank you for not smoking. I, I, back in my first church in Colorado, when you first walk in the doors on the left, right by the light switch, there's this big plaque that said, thank you for not smoking. It's like the most passive aggressive note of all time. It's because it's not actually thanking me for not smoking, right? It's, it's, what's it trying to do to me? It's like shaming me into not smoking. If you could just say, don't smoke, right? Uh, unless, I mean, maybe perhaps if I was gonna smoke and then I changed my mind because I saw the sign, either way, it's, it's being passive, it's manipulative, right? It's trying to get something out of someone, control them. And so that's kind of what we see here with the Pharisee. He's saying thank you for something that it, he actually hasn't, he's not acknowledging that he's received something, that I am not like other men. He is like other men. What's the problem? Sin, Sin is the problem. So he's, he's giving thanks for nothing, like, and, and then he's giving, giving the list here. Um, we're addicted, like, like him, we're addicted to watching the shortcomings of others. Um, because it makes us feel better about ourselves. Notice that what, what are the, like the main, the popular shows, especially like maybe in the, the trend of the early 2000s, all these reality TV shows, what makes them so engaging to watch? It's not because everyone is so good and kind, but you watch it because you're waiting for somebody to fall on their face, or it's like painful. You ever watch, for a while there, Mandy had me enjoy watching The Bachelor with her. <laughs> and it's like, you listen to these people, like, man, these, these people have real problems. <laughs> no wonder they're still single or whatever. Uh, like, this is terrible. Uh, and you're watching, but I, that's the idea. You're watching this, and you're, you're, it's easy to watch because it's easy to judge other people's failures. It's like, that's part of why Seinfeld is so fun to watch, right? They just sit there in the, in the, in the restaurant, and they do what? They make fun of everybody else all the time. That's where they find their joy comes so naturally to us. That guy doesn't spend money like a Christian should, like I do. Uh, those parents don't use the right kind of discipline technique like I do. If they would just be more like me. Uh, her priorities are all messed up. They're not as good as mine. So this is the Pharisee who's taking up the law 
to, to hold others in contempt and find righteousness in themselves. One big critique here for him, and we see maybe the root of his problem, I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. The Greek there is, I give tithes of all that I snatch for myself, I grab for myself. So how are we to understand everything that we have as a gift? So I have gained nothing from my, myself. It's all given to me. So the Pharisees, in the back of his head here is that I am, I'm grabbing all that I have. And I'm so generous, I even give a tenth of it back to God. But the starting point is this, not seeing anything in his life as a, as a gift. So the sequence there in the law, first, refusal to receive things as a gift from God. Two, grasping at righteousness then by the law. Because I'm not going to get righteousness from him as a gift. Righteousness is something I have to grab for myself. And he's given me the, he's given me the thing to grab it with, right? He's given me the law. So I'm grabbing after righteousness for myself. Three, as I'm doing that, I judge others and show contempt for others by the law. And then in all that, finally, I cut myself off from God and from others, left as a wanderer. To use this, like Cain, after Cain kills Abel, he is cut off and wandering around. That is, so he, he doesn't go home justified because he refuses to be made righteous and find his righteousness and the mercy of God, but rather he's clinging for righteousness on his own from God, claiming everything in his life is something he's grabbed for himself, and he's cutting himself off from everybody around him. What a, what a sad, that's really a picture of hell, to be totally cut off from God and alone. And that's, this, that's the direction of those who are finding themselves righteous on their own accord under the law. Now, interestingly there, the flip then is that we've got the guy who is outwardly seemingly righteous according to his interpretation of the law. Then we have those who the law is rightly condemning, not because he's a tax collector. We talked about this before. The, big, the beef with the tax collectors um, was that they had kind of betrayed their own people to work for Rome. Um, so, I, so that's one big thing, but also they were, they were notoriously um, thieves. They were rot, overtaxing people because that's ultimately how they made their money, remember? Like they, they, were, they were just, the, the government was requiring X amount of dollars and they could charge anything above that that they wanted and they was, it had to be given to them. And so they had to determine what that difference was. So they were, they were considered to be thieves, and then also it's speculated that they were often used there. They're always lumped together with prostitutes because it's often thought that they were, over, they were spending this excess of funds in uh, prostitution and the like. So they're always associated with, with sinners. And he, so those are the ones who are cut off from God, it would seem, who are alone. And yet that's the very one who Jesus here is commending. He's flipping it around. Uh, the tax collector stood afar off with, with not, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So to look to God for mercy is to look to God for gifts, because remember, mercy is the undeserved favor of God. That is a gift. So to be looking to God for mercy is not trying to grab righteousness or grab anything from him, 
but to simply open up our arms to God and say, I, I, don't, I deserve nothing, which is, I mean, that's a model of our, of our own confession on, on Sunday morning, is it not? I mean, we say it because we say it so frequently and, and um, maybe we don't think about it. And usually, I mean, at that point in the service, you're still kind of like getting settled into your pew and making sure the kids got their stuff and you can kind of go through the motions. But what we're ultimately confessing there is I am a poor, miserable sinner. That I am, I am broken, not just in the, my sins that I've done, but all the way to the core. We don't say, I thank you that I'm not like the people behind me with the noisy kids. That's, that's usually my kids, by the way, no. But like, but so this, we're always looking at others. No, no, the eyes, the law is honing in on us. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Total despair of self, uh, one who receives a gift from the righteousness of God. Grasping for nothing but receiving everything. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So what, is, what does it mean to be justified? Forgiven, good. I mean, it certainly includes that. So justif- the language of justification, which it's, it's, I mean, if you're a gung-ho Lutheran scholar, um, you'll, you'll, the, the word justification should like ding a bell in your head. Um, article four of the Augsburg Confession is the article of justification. Uh, it's, it's said that the article of justification is the article upon which the church stands or falls. It is everything. To be justified according to the works of Christ, the works and merits of Christ alone, apart from anything in myself. So complete, complete, um, you almost said justification, but you shouldn't use the word in the definition. (laughs) Complete forgiveness on on account of Christ alone. But here's the thing. Justification is courtroom language. So this idea of guilty, a verdict is rendered guilty, not guilty, according to the evidence. And that is, at the end of the day, the, the, if a person is, I mean, not to pick on O.J. Simpson, but, but I will. So, but, so, you're, so it's obvious, like, there's so many things screaming that there's, that there's guilt here, according to what he has done. But if the, if the glove don't fit, you must acquit. And so the, according to the judge, he was rendered what? Not guilty. Can't be tried for the same crime twice and therefore not guilty, regardless of the actual state of himself, right? Also, sadly, at times, can people be wrongly, like the, the, the evidence maybe swayed the jury to call someone guilty who was in fact not guilty, and maybe they, 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 they have to go to the... the um, Go to prison or go to the electric chair, or whatever the, is that still a thing? Oh no, anybody, no one does that anymore. <laughs> However you kill criminals, if that still even happens. Um, but so it's, it's about the verdict by the judge. That's this, this courtroom language of objective justification from God's perspective saying not guilty. Now, here's the helpful thing for us. That, that picture is always very helpful to think of it as a courtroom because we're the ones who are on trial. And we actually know that we're guilty. 
And even worse, like the best prosecuting attorney is going after, whose after us, whose name happens to be accuser. Satan means accuser. So he's bringing the law. He's bringing the accusations. And everything is clear that we, as we confess, we deserve nothing but punishment. Temporal and eternal punishment is our confession. And so God then looks at us and he says, not guilty. What? So it's declared. Now the guilt that we do deserve, I mean, somebody's going to answer for this crime. Who does? Jesus. Remember the, the great exchange. He takes all of our sin, all of our guilt upon himself, gives us all of his righteousness. So in the courtroom, it's like Jesus jumps in front of the, the verdict and says, I'm the guilty one so that they will go free. So Jesus then takes the punishment that we deserve, but it's declared objectively upon us. So there, there is also subjective justification as us realizing that, acknowledging that I, I am forgiven. Jesus did die for me, not just for the world, but specifically for me, strengthening my faith in him. But the powerful thing in this is the justification is declared to me from the outside. And that's why it's so clear here this Pharisee, even if he's obviously misusing the law, but from, especially if we're comparing the Pharisee with the tax collector, it's obvious that he's got less maybe uh, noticeable outward sin. And maybe even he's, he's controlled his inside pretty well too or something. And the tax collector is, is a notorious sinful lifestyle. So it would seem to be very clear who is guilty, who is declared guilty and who is declared not guilty. That's not how justification is working. So the, the sinner, the tax collector, goes home justified and not the other because ultimately our righteousness has to come from God alone and it's declared. See? And then, for, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This recalls uh, Mary Mag. Uh, Mary, the mother of our Lord's prayer in the Magnificat. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He exalted the lowly. He makes the proud humble. So it's this, this, this reversal. It's always happening with Jesus. So anyone who exalts himself like this Pharisee will be humbled. How? Well, this, Jesus is doing it. Consider the rhetoric of this very parable. He's not talking about the guys who think that they're righteous. He's talking to them. Why? To make them humble, to give them the gift of repentance. See? And this is a, it's a picture of our own lives too. So God comes to us in our, in our times of being like the Pharisee. He comes this very day. He gives us this parable to, to cut us to cut us to the quick, to cut us down for our self-righteousness, for us, for times that we think that we're more righteous than others. I mean, just consider your own life, your own experience of the law, taking up the law to measure yourself, considering yourself to be better than others. I, I do better stuff than them, and they're worse than me. So then God gives the law to humble us, not to judge others, but he gives it to us to, to make us humble. And I can't humble myself. Notice that, like... So he does say, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But how does one humble himself? What does God use to 
have us humble ourselves. I don't even know I need humility. Yeah, he's got to come and ultimately tell me that I need it, which is the very thing that causes it, you see? He comes to me with a law to tell me that I'm not humble, which is the thing that brings me humility. So God, I mean, so you can say, I need to humble myself, but fine, how do you know you need to humble yourself? How do you measure yourself as to being, that you need humility or not? What are you going to use? What's the measuring stick? Right? The law, which is the very thing that brings us humility. Beautiful. Um, and that's, so with that humility, we're going we're gonna to move into the, right, right into the next section here on children. But may I just pause for a quick second, see if there's any questions about that, that um, verses 9 to 14 with the Pharisee and tax collector. Comments or questions? Nope. Let's keep rolling. Now they were bringing even infants to him that they might touch them. Interesting. These infants, this word infants, brephos, it's the same Greek word when, when John the Baptist jumped in, in um, Elizabeth's womb because of Jesus. So that word, the baby, so when she said, the baby in my womb leapt for joy when you spoke, that's the same word, fetus, you know, to use our modern language. Even infants to him, so, it, it's, so you don't, don't cause some people make the case that well, what it means is like small children who are able to make a decision for Jesus. Not baby, baby, baby. No, this is the word for baby, baby, babies. <laughs> to him that he might touch them because remember, so the gospel is touch. We often forget this. So, so Jesus is always bringing about his delivering of the gospel to us through touch. That includes the spoken word. Now you're like, oh, no, I, I'm speaking to you now. I'm not touching you. Well, if nothing is touching your eardrums, then they don't work. What makes them work? Vibrations. vibrations. What, what causes vibrations? Something has to hit them, right? No, you can't see them. But this, so the idea is the gospel is him touching us through his word, putting his name upon us through the water of holy baptism, feeding us his body and blood. And Jesus in his person always is touching people to heal them. Not always, I mean, he doesn't have to, certainly. He can just declare it. But this interesting thing here is Jesus is bringing this gospel to people. When the disciples saw it, because he's physical, that's why it matters. So he's, he took on our humanity. He has a hand, he has fingers, he can touch us. When the disciples saw it, they rebuked him. That's just a bizarre thing to, to think about. How do, you, how do you walk in with Jesus for three years? And what would give you the impression at this point that, no, get, get your kids away from Jesus. He's really busy. No pictures, no pictures. <laughs> but Jesus called them to him saying, let the children, that's the word paideia, let the children come to me. So that does refer to older children. And do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So that begs the question, how does the child receive the kingdom? Now we're jumping to that because you're Lutheran, so don't get ahead of yourself. <laughs> what, what does a child do? Th th nothing, that's the idea. Now, baptism obviously is connected to that very point, but the, the, the starting point, especially in the, remember, the, remember he, just, he just taught on humility? 
So I need, and then he, right away, right into these, the situation with the kids. They can't do anything. They can't merit anything. And yet salvation is given to them. So not only humility in the sense of I'm, I am, oh, I'm, I consider myself to be lowly, but humility in the sense of I actually am. See the difference? So it's one thing for me to be like, if I'm Michael Jordan, and you say, you're really great at basketball, I'd be like, oh, shucks. I mean, I'm, I'm okay. That's like this, it's, it's trying to be humble, right? Let's not talk about me, let's talk about something else, whatever. But if like you walked up to actually me and said, you're really great at basketball, and I'm like, I, it's not humility for me to say, no, I'm not. If I'm, because I'm not, right? That's the idea. So the, the, the actual inability to do something on my own, see? That's this humility of this total inca- in, incapable of saving myself like a child. So notice the children, we bring them, you bring them home from the hospital and you set them on the front porch and say, all right, you, you got to do it from here. At least you have to decide to at least enter the door and I'll take care of you. No, we do everything for the child. Even when, this is the best part, like the child doesn't want it. Have you ever tried to put like pants on a two-year-old? <laughs> who's, who's, like, you just want to go to church naked? You got to do it because that's what, that's what parents do. You're doing the thing, right? You're, you're taking care of this, of the child. And that's how salvation is. That's how these children uh, merit the kingdom by their inability to do anything. That's this humility. So don't hinder them. Now, some questions here. My, hold on, Mike had a question. Oh, no, you, you covered it. <laughs> All right. Question one down there. Uh, how might children be hindered from coming to Jesus today? The phones, and yet interesting. Like we, like the chill. It's like the phone. The electronics are just terrible for the kids. Um, I read that on my phone in an article once. <laughs> and yet, why, why do I think that my kids? Really, it's not just the kids, right? That's my point. It's not just them. How else? But you're right. Certainly, there's things getting in the way. Tim, you had something. Yeah, that's what we're talking about. So we don't do that. Have you ever, if you, some, so some churches make this, um, so it's church is, let's back up even a step further. What is the point of church? What's the goal? The, what are we trying to achieve in the divine service? If it's academic, then it does make sense to remove the kids, which by the way, listen right now, where are the kids? Because this is the academic time. That's why we have the kids. And, and, and this would be above their heads, right? So they're learning Jesus loves me level stuff as they grow. That's necessary. But we are saying that's not what Sunday morning is about in the divine service. So the divine service is worshiping together. And yes, that at times means children are going to be children. And that's okay. A quiet church is a dying church. So if you have a child who's not making noise, pinch them. <laughs> but that's the idea. So we, we, have, we have to be comfortable with that. 
And not everybody is, especially if they're coming from a church body where the purpose of Sunday morning is academic. I've had a lot of conversation with people recently about like what, you know, I think Sunday, Sunday morning, your church services are kind of long. It might be better if, if like the kids would go and have their Sunday school and we could focus better during church. Now think about what we're teaching the kids. So what are they doing with the kids in whatever back room they send them to? It's not church. What are they doing back there? Entertaining them. To be sure, t- even if it's teaching the gospel at their level, is it more fun to sit in church for the, for the three-year-old and learning, watching mom and dad, watching everybody stand up, sit down, learning the rhythm, learning the liturgy, which you all know, they know it. Because they can't read, they're, they're lear- they, can, they can sing all the words to like frozen songs. They can learn the liturgy by, by just doing it, by hearing it. But it's more fun to go back and like, glue some cotton swabs on a popsicle stick and make it into whatever, ultimately that has its place for the child in teaching whatever the thing is. What would you glue a cotton ball on? Anyway, you get the idea. <laughs> so the idea is, is that the, we want to teach the kids on their, at their level in Sunday school, but that's not what we're trying to do on Sunday. If we send the kids off to entertain them, we're teaching them that Sunday morning is about entertaining you. And they never grow out of that. Which is why, I mean, that was a big trend in my generation, was to remove kids from church, send them to Sunday school, make, give them something at their level. And as the kids grew up, they, they just decided to make church what, they, what their preference was as well. So I know the church did this worship this way for 2,000 years, but you know what? I think it's going to be more effective if I make it like a rock concert or whatever, whatever my preference is. I'll change the church to accommodate my preferences. Well, we've taught them to think that way because for the first 15 years of their life, we were accommodating to their preferences, right? Why are we surprised, right? So that's why we kind of hold tight on this, keep the kids in church, and then try to make, try to make the church engaging. I mean, I, uh, if you ever get a chance to go up like St. John Wheaton and uh, so Pastor Bruzik has this fun thing he does where he says, our, kid, our services are very kid friendly. Their average age in the church is like 30, 30. So there's kids everywhere. And he, he asks them to sit in the front, which if you have a new parent with kids who hasn't really come to church often, you say sit in the front, they look at you like you're crazy. But like, sit, think about church. We play with fire. We play with water. We stand up and sit down. They're singing. We play with money. All these things that engaging for the kids. So like there's ways to try to engage the child. Now it's certainly hard during like sermon when we're trying to do the little academic bits. Um, that's a challenge. And so it's like, fine, go, run, hop out to the narthex where it's carpeted, give them a soft toy, let them run around and then bring it back in for the rest. Um, if, you can't, if you can't handle the greased pig, as I refer to Sadie, uh, sometimes it's, it's hard. But, that, but the idea is we're teaching, we're teaching them to be in worship. We're teaching them to love being in worship. And it's hard in those early years, but then it becomes easy. Um, but if you don't do it, I'm, telling, I'm, I'm literally preaching to the, to the choir in this situation, but the idea would be if we, don't, if we remove the children from church, it, when's it going to be better? It's only going to get harder because they don't want to be, the sinful flesh doesn't want to be in there. It's just at a younger age, it's, it's, it's harder for them to say no. When you wait till the kid's 15 and say, hey, let's go to church, they say, uh, no, I have my own car, right? Um, well, yeah, good. So good point there, Tim. How else might children be hindered from coming to Jesus? Our society. 
society? Just in general? Just blaming society? <laughs> what, woke culture? Like recalibrating the kids' standard right or wrong? Yeah, certainly. Yes? Yeah, and that's where we, exactly, to make, the, to make that jump to baptism, I mean, that's the, um, you have so many young families who, if you're one, the, the, the decision theology, which has at its core the mindset that I have to make a decision for Jesus, and once I've made a decision for Jesus, then I can choose to be baptized as an outward show of my faith. Uh, versus God actually doing the saving through holy baptism, which would be our confession of baptism, right? But when, yeah, we, when we separate kids, we pull kids from baptism uh, and don't give them the gift because we want to wait for them to, to uh, be able to make a decision for it. That's like, well, it's like waiting to bring the kid inside from the hospital until they're able to tell you they want to commit to the hospital. You, you need to give the kid what the kid needs to survive. We're more concerned about getting the right car seat, all the different, when you go to Bye Bye Baby, there's like a thousand different kinds of every kid thing. And when you read the fine print, they all can kill you if you use them wrong. So you're like making sure you're assembling the crib right and all this stuff. Think about the time and energy you put into that, but then the spiritual stuff is just like secondary. Whereas really it's the, it's the most important thing. And that kind of gets into, um, well, well, we can wrap this up for today, but we, we've got, I actually did my, my doctorate work on this very dynamic. So you've got people who desire baptism for their children for a variety of reasons, none of which might be known to me. But if they just come to me and say, hey, can I have my kid baptized? What, should, what do you say? Let's play you be me. Now we've all seen, we've, we've seen count many baptisms. You can tell where people have no idea what's going on because this is the first service he's ever been to, probably the last one as well. We baptize the child, and then what? Never see him again. And which is not how baptism is given. So remember, we make disciples of all nations by baptizing and teaching. So the baptism expects a life of learning the faith. But, what are, on, again, you be me, how much prerequisite is one to give to this problem? Should I say, well, I'll tell you what, once you demonstrate to me that you're super duper gung-ho about this, then I'll baptize your baby. Well, how can I expect them to be super duper gung-ho? They're just now kind of learning as, as parents. Um, so the, and, and I'm kind of making a law. I don't want to hinder the child from coming to Jesus. But also, my mindset, just so you know, our current practice, is because we do have more and more with the, with the school uh, opportunities that we have where people will request baptism without really any church background and just saying, look, this is what baptism is. This is what baptism kind of expects to be teaching for the children. Um, very much like to be teaching you as a parent to be teaching this to the children. Um, so there, there's this, there is this kind of expectation 
that baptism has. Bradford, we've walked through that. They give me their amen to that. This verbal, yes, it's my intention to raise the kid uh, in this faith. Then, then we kind of just schedule it and baptize. And, and then, then support, then it's follow, follow up, calling them, you know, making sure they're trying to bring the kids. So, but yeah, it's hard because otherwise we make a law out of a sacrament and say, well, we're only, we're only baptize these babies after the parents are coming to church faithfully for two years and, and three days. And what's the line, right? But it, we recognize, I mean, we're not ignorant of this, of this problem, but we're, we're trying to find the best way without, without hindering the children from coming to Jesus. And most importantly, we recognize that God's giving the gift of his name regardless of the parent's unfaithfulness, right? So he's, he's still working through the word, working through holy baptism um, in, the, in the sacrament itself. But then as the body of faith, which is part of like, we're, we're all complicit in this, when we say, well, we, amen, we welcome you in the name of the Lord. Like we're, we are, as this body of Christ, we recognize, hey, as a young family raising a child, it's hard sometimes, let's encourage them. If you see them around, invite them back, you know, that kind of, that kind of thing. Uh, very good, let's, we'll pick up next time with um, the rich ruler, the camel going through the eye of a needle. That's for next week. The Lord be with you.